1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to actually finish the chapter, believe it or not. We're going to start in verse 29 and also Acts chapter 19. If you guys have been with us, you know that 1 Corinthians is a corrective epistle. Translation, this church had problems. This church had issues. One thing that Paul seems to be doing over and over again is fixing problems in this church. The, the problem du jour, if you will, in chapter 15, is that some in this church were actually denying the resurrection. Now go figure. They called themselves Christians, but they didn't believe in resurrection. We've said it before. That's an oxymoron. That's like jumbo, jumbo shrimp. That's like cowardly lion. Clearly misunderstood. And affordable housing. It's an oxymoron. You can't, you can't say you're a Christian and not believe in resurrection. If you are a Christian and you don't believe in resurrection, then you run into all sorts of problems with logic. We've seen that, as, as we saw last time, in chapter 15, verses 12 through 28. The title of that message last week was, Jesus, Victim or Victor? If he never rose from the grave, then he's just a victim. A victim of circumstance, of, of false accusations. But if he actually rose from the grave and conquered death, then he is victor. We took a, a trip in a time machine, uh, Doc Brown's DeLorean, last week, back to that first Easter Sunday. And we said, okay, what if Jesus had never been raised from the dead? What if he just stayed in that tomb, a corpse? What if Jesus were just a victim of an unjust death sentence? What would that mean? What would that mean to these Corinthians that Paul's writing to? What would it mean to us? Well, let's, let's read in verse 13. You get some of the ramifications here, beginning in verse 13. This is what we looked at last week. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he has raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Every, sing every single person you know that call themselves a Christian, if Jesus never rose from the dead, they are still in their sins and they have perished. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. It's a pretty sad-looking picture. That's what life would look like if Jesus were just a victim. On the other hand, we saw verse 20, we begin to see the other possibility. Well, we saw the, the truth. Verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul says, but now Christ is risen from the dead. And what he's saying is, because Jesus is the first fruits, he's basically saying we will follow in his footsteps. Because he rose, we too will rise again. Everyone who makes Jesus Lord, King, Savior of his life or her life will be raised from the dead to eternal life. On the other hand, everyone who rejects Jesus in this life is still an enemy to Christ. And that person will also be raised, but to eternal judgment, the Bible tells us, as an enemy of Christ. Look at verse 25. It says, for he, that's Christ, Jesus, for Jesus must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. I like that. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. That's where we left off last time. 
Now, when the words uh, to be continued scrolled across our screen last week, the picture then on the screen was of Jesus, not a victimized corpse in a grave, but a victorious conqueror with his foot on the neck of his enemies. Meaning he had conquered them. That's how you signified that you had conquered someone. You put your foot on their neck while they're laying down there on the, on the ground. And the last neck, if you will, to be crushed, the last enemy destroyed, my friends, is this great terrorist called death. Now, just as Jesus must either be, he has to be logically, either a victim or a victor, because we are in Jesus, so we must be. Our future is exactly the same as his. Like it or not, if you're a Christian, and I hope you are, if you are in Christ, then your destiny is incurably, inextricably intertwined to his destiny. If there is no resurrection, then Jesus is a victim. And so are you. If there is resurrection, then he's the victor. And so are you. First, Paul considers the former. Look at verse 29 is where we're going to begin. Paul says, look, there must be a resurrection. The question we're answering today, by the way, is you and I. Now we've talked about Jesus, whether he was a victim or a victor. We know the answer. You and I now. Are we victims or victor? Verse 29 says, there must be a resurrection, Paul says. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead. Well, now that makes perfect sense. Want to move on to verse 30? No? <laughs> you want me to explain that? Um, is, is Paul advocating here baptism for the dead? It, as the, the Mormons practice? You guys know Mormons keep detailed genealogies, probably the best in the world. And one of the reasons is so that they can baptize their dead ancestors. Is Paul saying here that they're doing it right, that we should be doing this? Well, I learned this week that there are over 200 possible interpretations. 200 different interpretations have been given for these, this one verse. Now, you guys are so lucky that I know the right one. Okay, now I don't pretend to know this verse completely accurately, but this I do know. Paul cannot be, he is not teaching this practice or even endorsing this practice of baptizing for the dead. First, look at the pronouns. Verse 29, he says, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? Notice he didn't say, why do we? Paul didn't ever claim to do it. And he didn't even say, why do you? He, none of, nobody in the church that he's talking to does this. He says, why do they? It's a third party. Now, here's what makes the most sense to me. We know that there were pagans just north of Corinth. Well, pagans everywhere, but a particular brand of pagans just north of Corinth that baptized their dead. We know also from our previous studies that the Greeks disdained the whole idea of resurrection. And we also know that Corinth was positively infected with the latest ideas, right? So put these things together. What I think is happening here is that they that Paul is talking about, are the very same ones who said they didn't believe in resurrection. It would be no surprise to me at all if the same, forgive me, the same morons that absorbed Greek thinking about the resurrection said there is no resurrection, also absorbed the pagan practice of baptism of the dead. That they just were like, well, that sounds good. 
Okay, that sounds good. I mean, the Greeks over here, they don't believe in that, but, but the pagans over here, that's kind of cool. We're familiar with that, aren't we? That whole a la carte religion, right? I'll take a little Hinduism. I'll have a main entree of Christianity and like a side of fries with that. People creating God in our own image according to our good pleasure. You know what? I want my God to be like this. See, I think these guys that Paul's talking about, they have baptism of the dead and they have the doctrine uh, of, of that the dead don't rise. They have them on the same spiritual plate. And Paul says, hello, think about this. I mean, what is baptism? You guys know Romans chapter 6 tells us that baptism is a picture. It's a picture of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. But even better, it's a picture of our death to sin, our burial to the old man. The old man is down there in the pool of water and our being raised to new life. That is baptism. Now, you go down into the water symbolizing your death to to sin's hold on you. You stay under for a bit, some of you more than others maybe, symbolizing the burial of the old you, and you come up symbolizing your new resurrection in Jesus. Paul says, look, if if you call yourself a Christian, but you don't believe in the resurrection, then we're doing your baptism all wrong. I mean, if there is no resurrection, we should have left off that last part, bringing you up out of the water. The pastor should just hold you under the water till the bubbles stop, leave you at the bottom of the pool. Everybody goes to Sunny's and celebrates your death. Now, of course, that's hard on church growth. But it's accurate. It's accurate if there is no resurrection. You can't say, I don't believe in resurrection and still practice anything close to baptism of any kind. Paul says, if there is no resurrection, then you and I are drowning in our sins. We're still drowning in our sins. And Paul says, if there is no resurrection, verse 30, then I'm a victim too. He says, and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? He's talking about him and his uh, travel mates. Why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Now, he's not talking about the TV show. Yeah, Alex, I'll take New Testament history for a thousand. No, he was saying, why do I risk my life? Why do I risk my life every day? Why in the world... Am I living on the razor's edge of death if there's no life after it? He says, verse 31, I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Now, he's not talking about anything spiritual here. He's saying, look, every day I'm this close to death. Verse 32, if in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise... Let us eat eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I'm going to give you some speculation here. Remember that the Corinthians, chapter 1, way back in chapter 1, they had divided up into camps. Everybody goes like, look, you might follow Apollos, but I follow Paul, and I follow Peter, and this is my favorite teacher. My pastor is way better than your guy. Your guy stinks, that kind of thing. Well, my guess is, it's just a guess, is that Paul's supporters had used his courageous adventures to do some boasting on his behalf. Turn with me to Acts chapter 19. You might see what I mean. Acts chapter 19, I think that the story that we're going to talk about got back to Corinth. 
Paul is preaching in Ephesus, and he's doing so well that all the blacksmiths, the guy who make gods, okay, go figure that out, they make gods, they're, they're running out of business. The blacksmiths don't have any business to, to do because he is preaching so well, people are giving up these pagan things. And that, of course, irritates the blacksmiths, and they begin a riot. Um, they, they, they are trying to get worship for Diana rolling again so that they can bring income into their coffers. And verse 28 says... These guys have been stirring these, these, the rest of the uh, Ephesians up. They say, now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And apparently they did this over and over again. They just were whipping themselves up into a frenzy. Verse 29, so the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord. Having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. He says, why do we put our, our lives in jeopardy every hour? Because they, it says there that they rushed into the theater. And you know that wasn't to see Pirates of the Caribbean. They're talking about the Colosseum kind of theater. You know, the place where men faced lions and uh, each other and angry mobs, perhaps. They're running into the theater saying, bring, bring us this guy. But did Paul care? Is he scared? No way. Look at verse 30. Acts chapter 19, verse 30 says, And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. This guy is fearless. They are in a frenzy. They are in the spot where people die saying, bring him in. He's like, yeah, let me in. Verse 31. Then some of the officials of Asia who were his friends sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. See, I think that's what he's talking about when he says uh, facing the beasts. Back to chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 with me. See, Paul was willing to face, if you will, the beasts at Ephesus. Now, so the Corinthians, I think, this is like Paul's street cred. Right? They're like, okay, well, yeah, you think that Apollos is so great. Well, Paul, our guy, he like lives on the razor's edge of death every day. They, I mean, they had to physically restrain him from entering the Colosseum to face the beasts. They're, they would say, look, nobody's laying it out there for Jesus like our guy. Paul, and Paul writes, verse 32, If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, as you say, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If, if the dead do not rise, then Paul says, what in the world am I doing risking it all for? If the, if the dead do not rise, Paul says, toss me a beer. Let's, let's get hammered. Let's get wasted. Let, get, give me a good steak. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's a very familiar philosophy in that day. Still is today, of course, but it had a name back then. It was the philosophy of the Epicureans. It was the philosophy of the hedonists. It was the philosophy of the artist formerly known as the artist formerly known as Prince. You know what I'm talking about? They say 2000, zero, zero, if party's over, right? Then I'm going to party like it's 1999. That was, Prince was the perfect Epicurean. He says, look, if it's all over, if there's nothing left, if, if this, when you get to the edge of this life, that's it. He's like, let's party. And if the dead do not rise, Paul says, that's, that's a fair conclusion. That's the only logical conclusion you can come to. Paul says, look, if there's nothing on the other side of this life, then I'm a fool. You guys see how what you believe about the next life 
if you believe in the next life, totally matters how you live this one. Paul says, if the dead do not rise, then I'm a victim. I'm a reckless fool, Paul says. Now, Paul gets to the source of this whole problem in verse 33. Look with me at, look at it with me. Verse 30, 33, do not be deceived, Paul says. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. He says, I speak this to your shame. See, the source of the whole problem was that these Corinthians had picked their friends really poorly. You guys know you can't pick your friend's nose. That's bad form. But you can pick your friends. And when you do, it's a really good thing to remember what Paul says here. Evil company corrupts good habits. The people you hang around, well, they're going to rub off on you. Paul is not saying, though, we know this. You've got to keep the whole context of the Bible in, in line here. Paul is not saying to withdraw from the world, to completely uh, insulate ourselves and never be part of the world. No, we are told to be in the world, but not of the world. You could say we're to be engaging this world, but we're not supposed to be engaged to it. We're not to be making wedding plans with this world when we are to be making wedding plans with the bridegroom, Christ. Now, we should. I hope we do. I hope you guys have unbelieving friends. I hope you have unbelieving acquaintances. I hope you have unbelieving co-workers. You probably do. But what about your closest friends? The friends that you have, do, do they lift you up in Christ? The, the close friends? And the unbelieving friends that you have, do you lift them up toward Christ? Or if you're honest, if you have some unbelieving friends, do they drag you down? If it's the former, if you are lifting up people in Christ, then good for you. But if it's the latter, if you have, your closest friends are dragging you down, then they're like an anchor or a spiritual anchor and I think you need to cut the rope. Wow, this is not complicated. This is stuff that Lisa and I talked with the high schoolers when we were in Orlando. Over and over again, they would say, you know, I don't know about this friend. Like, okay, well, are you impacting them for good or are they more impacting you the other way? Oh, okay. Okay, lose them. <laughs> right? It's that simple. Um, you need to look at the fruit of that relationship. And if you are filled with the Spirit and you are impacting them, then that's great. Um, but you can't be having them influence your life so much that you are being drawn down. Look at verse 34. He says, Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Basically says, look, some of you have forsaken, you've forgotten God altogether because of this bad influence. Now, in verse 35, Paul anticipates the mocking questions from the opposition. Those who would say there is no resurrection. Verse 35, he says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Now, remember, Paul, we, we talked about this last time. Paul is insisting on a physical resurrection. See, some of the Greeks, they were like, well, yeah, there's life after death, but you're in this spirit ghost kind of a body. You're, you're not in a physical body. They, they disputed the physical resurrection. So Paul says, he anticipates, he says, no doubt, when you guys read this letter in Corinth, somebody's going to be proposing the mocking question, something like this. Okay, Paul, so let me get this straight. Suppose a believer dies and he's buried 
and he decomposes and his remains soak into the ground and they become part of a plant that is eaten by a cow and that cow makes some milk and another Christian drinks it, then are the molecules shared? I mean, at the resurrection, isn't that going to be a big mess if it's the physical body? I mean, how's that going to work, Paul? That's the kind of mocking question he's anticipating here. Now, you guys may, I know some of you may have honestly wondered such things. How does that work? But for these guys, this was not an honest question. This was a foolish question. You know how I know? Look at verse 36. Foolish one. (laughs) In the original, it's even harsher. He says, fool. And then he goes on. He says, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive until it dies. He says, take a lesson from a farmer here. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. Paul says, look, it's, it's not that hard. What kind of a body are you going to have? Ask a farmer how it works with a seed. I mean, the seed that he plants is very, very different from the plant that grows up. Yet no man disputes that the plant came from that seed, right? I mean, they look way different. They act way different. But something of that plant came from the physical matter of that seed. When the farmer plants wheat, he says you don't see him burying a whole sheaf of wheat. It's just a little seed. It's not much to look at. It's ugly. And it has to go in the ground and die before it becomes alive. Again, Jesus said, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies... It lives alone. But if it will die, if it will submit to falling in the ground and dying, it will bear much fruit. It's the dying that makes living possible. When the farmer plants and buries this seed, when he first puts it in, it's just an ugly old seed. But what pops out is still related to that seed, but it's way better. It's uh, like a brand new thing, but it came from that ugly seed old seed. Do you get it? That's us. One day when the Lord returns, unless the Lord returns first, this ugly old body of mine will be planted in the ground. But what pops out is going to be fine. I know you're thinking, how can you improve on that? (laughs) The, The bodies that you and I have when the time comes, will be amazing. They will be astounding. But they will still come somehow from our current bodies. You guys know that's why what you do in this body matters. The whole thing was the Greeks were like, well, what I do in this body doesn't matter because none of this body is is going to heaven. But Paul says, no, you don't get it. What you do in this body matters. If They would say, if my physical body is evil, my spirit is still good. And they're not connected. I can trash my body. I can sleep around. I can abuse the seed all I want. And it doesn't matter. But Paul says, look, I don't know how, but somehow my enjoyment of the next life is connected to what I did with this seed. See, the way you get the most out of a seed is to put it in the ground and let it die. Jesus said, take up your cross. Follow me. Die daily, he says. And he was the same guy who said, I've come that they might have life. They might have it more abundantly. Do you get it? Now, remember, the skeptic has asked, verse 35, 
How are the dead raised up? Exactly how does this happen, Paul? And with what body do they come? In verse 38, Paul gives the only answer necessary. But God gives it a body as he pleases. And to each seed its own body. Paul says, you want to know how the the dead are raised up? God does it. There you go. I mean, if you put the word God in there, that makes it pretty possible, doesn't it? This is the same God that spoke the universe into existence. The same God that hung the heavens like with the span of his hand. I think he can raise up the new me out of the old, dead, ugly me. Again, the question comes up, what, what if I'm a heart donor and an unbeliever gets my heart and the rapture happens? Does my heart come flying out of his chest? I left my heart. <laughs> this isn't hard either. We know even now from cloning, even scientists, mere men, can make a living, living being out of one cell. Do you think maybe God could do that too? I mean... It doesn't matter if you're eaten by sharks or an organ donor or whatever it is. We're talking about God here. Then the the other question was, and with what body do they come? Verse 38 again. But God gives it a body as he pleases and to each seed its own body. Look, this is really good news. Your resurrected body, if you're worried about your resurrected body, don't be. Because God will give it as he pleases. God is much more particular than even you and me. He's going to give you a body that pleases him. And look how diverse and creative he is, Paul says, verse 39. All flesh is not the same, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. This is a footnote. Now, by the way, the Bible never teaches reincarnation. It teaches resurrection, right? He says, look, there's one kind of flesh for men, another kind of animals. You're not going to jump into a different kind of uh, species of flesh. But Paul's point here is not so much that, but God's creative ability. Look at verse 40. It says there's also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. This is kind of crazy. They've actually confirmed that last sentence in science in the last 20 years. No two stars have the same glory. None of them exhibit the same kind of light or the same amount of light. Each one that they've discovered so far is different from another. And Paul would say to the Corinthians and to us, look, God made more stars than you can fathom and he made each one unique and you're worried If he can handle the whole resurrection of your body. Now, perhaps verse 42, I think, is best understood as though there were parentheses around verse 39 to 41. Um, Because he he was talking about uh, seeds and then he goes back to talking about seeds. So let's read it that way. Start at verse 37. Paul says, and what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain. Perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases and to each seed its own body. Now read verse 42. So is also the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown. See, that's what a seed does. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. 
It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. See, the seed, if you notice, he's talking in parallels there. The seed is what? Hopefully you figured it out. Our bodies, right? In this illustration, the seed, your body is a natural body. In this analogy, God, let's, let's, let's say God opens up the ceiling here and he's like looking down at a packet of seeds. He's looking down. We, these are natural bodies, our seeds. Your natural body is the seed. The one that you have now, Paul says, will be put in the ground. Unless Jesus comes first, the seed that you have, the, the person that you are, the body that you possess, will go in the ground. And it says it will be sown, that is put in the ground, in corruption. The body that you have will go in the ground in corruption. The word corruption just simply means death, decay. But he says, but it will be raised in what? In corruption. When you go into the ground, it's death, it's decay. But when you come back up, it's never to die again. Paul says, your body will be sown, your body will be put in the ground one day, unless Jesus comes first, in dishonor. Now, I can't, I can't imagine anything more dishonorable than having someone shovel dirt on you and leaving. But the seed, he says, your body... When the time comes, your body will not be, it will be sown in dishonor, but it will be what? Raised in glory. That's a pretty good trade-off. He says your body will be sown in weakness. Dead is about as weak as you can get. It will be sown in weakness, but he says it will be raised in power. If any of you are facing sickness, or if you know someone, who's dealing with sickness at the end of their, their time. We're sown in, in corruption. We're sown in dishonor. We're sown in weakness. But look how we're raised. We are raised in incorruption. We are raised in glory. And we are raised in power. Verse 45. It's starting to really get good here. Verse 45. And so it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. That The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. We've got to keep moving here so I won't... Uh, belabor these points but i'll summarize basically paul touched on this last time he said look adam you know adam he was he calls him here the first adam and jesus is the second or he actually says the last adam there is there are no other adams right just the first and the last adam you may remember is the adam the guy who ate the apple and introduced death to the race thanks a lot buddy but jesus is the last Adam, and it says that he brought back life. Both of these guys were born sinless, but one turned us into seeds that have to die, but the other made it possible that we could live again. Verse 46, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. Greeks were all confused about spiritual and the natural. Verse 47, the first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, Adam, so also are those who are made of dust. That's us. And as is the heavenly man, so also those who are heavenly. That's some of us. I hope it's all of us. Verse 49. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's all of us, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. I hope that's all of us. See, what he's saying is that we Christians, 
Just like we were born into Adam's race, now we've been born into Jesus' family, his race. We all got the sin nature. Raise your hand if you didn't get the sin. No, I don't want to know that, if you think that. We all got the sin nature, and we all got its consequence, which is the, the wages of sin is death. We all got that stuff from Adam. You had no choice. But you do have a choice as to whether you will be of the second Adam. You do have a choice as to whether you will be in Jesus' family line. Verse 48 and 49 says that basically just like Adam was made of dust, so are you. And if you know Jesus, who is heavenly, you will be made suitable for heaven. Which is what leads to verse 50. Paul has answered two questions. If you're keeping up, hopefully you are. He's answered two questions already, which is how are the dead raised up and with what body? Remember how he, ra- how he answered the first one? How are the dead raised up? Well, God does it. And with what body? With a body that pleases him. With, that shows his creativity, his supreme power. And now Paul answers a third question that they didn't ask. Why? Why do we need new bodies? I mean, why can't... I mean, okay, I, I, I definitely want a new body. But there might be some of you who are like, hey, I, I just assume keep my own. Right? Why do we need a new body... In this sense, verse 50 says, here's why. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. You guys ever been to a swanky restaurant with a dress code? Me neither. (laughs) But I hear that there are restaurants that you can't get into with shorts and flip-flops. I understand they're up north. Not in Florida. See, the wonderful thing about heaven is there's some things that aren't allowed. There's no more crying. There's no more pain. No more sorrow. No more death are ever allowed into the kingdom. None of that stuff ever gets through the doors of heaven. So you could say, I think you understand what I mean. You could say there's a dress code in heaven. It's not Armani suits. It's not a certain kind of tie. No, it's righteousness. It's the utter absence of sin in any form. It's the utter absence of any of its consequences. Jesus talked about a banquet. He said, look, the Father sends out invitations and lots of people reject them. But some people respond. And then he talked about this guy who shows up At the wedding feast. And he shows up, though, without the proper clothes. Remember what happened to him? He's thrown out into outer darkness because he wasn't wearing the right thing. Now, you understand, he's not talking, again, about Armani suits. I don't need to be rude here, but you are not getting into heaven with those filthy rags you guys are wearing. Me neither. We are not getting into heaven in these Filthy rags. The stinking death outfit that we are wearing will not make it. But the Father graciously offers robes that His Son purchased for us. The Bible promises that we can be white as snow because of what Jesus has done. Jesus paid for these robes. Verse 51. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. 
Now, some churches have this painted on their nursery walls. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. But Paul's not talking about that here. He says, look, here's something new to chew on. We're talking about death. We're talking about resurrection. He's like, here's something maybe you hadn't thought of. Paul says, look, we all, every one of us who is a Christian, we will all be changed. We must be. We have to be changed to get into heaven. But there's going to be a group of people somewhere along the line of history that will not sleep. A whole group of people that will never die. Paul says, look, some of us, most of us will probably have to die. We'll have to go into the ground to experience this change. But he says, check this out. Not all of us will have to die to experience this change. Verse 51 again. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. Praise the Lord for that. Verse 53, for this corruptible must, see there it is, this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. Your corruptible, your mortal being cannot be admitted into heaven. Verse 54, so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on this robe of immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. (laughs) Verse 55, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Guys, that's awesome. Remember the title of the message today? You and I, victims or victors? If there is no resurrection, we are victims. Death is our enemy and he wins. But if Jesus was raised from the dead and he was And if I belong to him, then I am victorious. I am not a victim. I am a victor over death. So much so that, did you notice, Paul is gloating. You guys ever been on basketball court or wherever and heard guys trash talking? Right? Paul is here. He's trash talking death. Verse 55. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? Is that all you got, death? Is that your best punch? He's like, oh, I think I felt a whiff of air there when you tried to punch me. He speaks to hell. He says, you told me you were going to eat me for lunch. Well, where's your big talk now, hell? He says, my Savior has rescued me from the big bad death. That's the kind of trash talking he's doing here. When you face death, when you face death, and you will, unless Jesus comes first, will you be able to talk like that? I mean, will you have that kind of confidence is what I mean. If you know Jesus, you can look at death and he's a defeated foe. Verse 56 says, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus, we are not victims. We are victors through him. Verse 58, therefore, you guys remember, whenever you see a therefore, you've got to look and see what it's there for. Paul is summing up. He's saying, look, because of all of this, he's been talking about the resurrection, saying it's real, it's true. What you do in this life matters for the next. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. If you forget 
that Jesus is coming back. You can start to look around and say, why am I doing all this work? What's up with that? I heard, it broke my heart, but I heard this week of a church where the, the pastor got up and said, look, you know, I don't, we don't really think that Jesus is going to be back anytime soon. And this uh, my church I know. And I'm like, how can, you, how can you think that way? The Bible says that when you say my master delays his coming, that you begin to act wicked and beat the servants and do all sorts of stuff you shouldn't do. Therefore, my beloved brethren, because he is risen and because he's coming back, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He says, be steadfast, immovable. Don't let the devil move you. Don't let the philosophies of the world move you. Don't let TV convince you of anything different. He says, abound in the work of the Lord. What's that mean? Work hard. Work hard because it's worth it. He's watching. He will reward. He, he, the Bible says that God will be a debtor to no man. If you're working hard and you're getting discouraged, don't forget who you're working for. He is a good and gracious God. We, we already owe him everything, but he's going to bless us for what we choose to do since he's rescued us. It's amazing. He's watching. He will reward. Your labor is not in vain. So Paul would say, keep it up. Don't be discouraged. Keep going for it.